episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Daniel Linder, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, who will be talking about his practice in an area of specialty the effects of stigma, and the internalization of social conditioning on mental health. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hi. Hi. So you know, uh, tell us. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, the what we're going to talk about today isn't my specialty. It's just something I was interested in, wrote about, and know a lot about, and incorporate into my work. But the, the real focus of my work is relationship therapy, and I'm an addiction recovery and intervention specialist as well. So cool. Cool. Well, I yeah. think that's very important when it comes to stigma. Um, those are both like very big areas of importance um, when, it, when it comes to recognizing stigma and what people face in our communities. Um, and incorporating that into your work, I think, is really important, um, you know, on a relationship couple level and on a uh, addiction level as well. Um, so, Daniel, why don't we start? What are your credentials and experience? I am a licensed marriage and family therapist uh, and uh, addiction specialist, relationship trainer, couples and family therapist for over 30 years. Uh, I love what I do. Uh, you know, those are my credentials and those are my um, interests and specialties. Just a little bit about me that I bring into my work is that all of the work that I do is about empowering the transformation of relationships by developing a relationship with yourself. That's kind of the heart and soul of my work. Now, in terms of me as a person uh, and also combining that with my work, I would say you know, I've been into relationships more than anything else in my life. I'm, I'm, 
I'm a natural born relator off the streets of Brooklyn, ready to relate to anyone, anytime, anyone, anywhere about anything. And I listen to. I've always been into relationships all my life. For as long as I can remember, when I was five years old, I was always mesmerized and captivated by how people around me deal with each other in relationships. And um, I have found recently, I'm writing a book now, and I have found recently that what I'm really about and what's most important to me and my purpose in life is about making deep connections and creating intimate relationships. That's really what is most important to me and the work that I do and the books that I'm writing are really all for people who are like me in a way, who are really, who put, who put making deep connections and intimate relationships their top priority. So that's the little summary. Uh, maybe that's more than what you asked for, but um, no, that's that's awesome. I, I any and all information is appreciated on this show. Um, so, in your practice, is the practice your name, or is it uh, under a PLLC or Daniel A. Linder MFT? But I am. I have a website, and um, my my website to contact me to read about my articles, my to access my services, to read about my stuff. It's all on my website, relationshipvision.com. Cool. Perfect. Um, so in your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? Um, I do not accept insurance anymore. Uh, maybe the last five or 10 years, I've reached the point in my career and my life where I want to just see uh, private pay clients and not have to deal with the insurance and not be on panels and not be in networks and locked into their rules. And so I'm sell- where I am in my career right now, I don't, I'm, not on, I'm not taking uh, insurance and working on panels because I've, at, I've reached that point right now. I'm so in demand and I'm so, I can work so much, I don't need to be on panels anymore. So it's just me, straight up, me and you. And, and if I have my fees and if my fees are too much for you, um, I could adjust them if that's an issue, sliding scale based on ability to pay because I don't want money to be um, an obstacle if you're motivated for treatment. So I could adjust the fees within my own comfort and the other person's comfort. So we would call it more of like a reduced fee than like a traditional sliding scale that has like, um, like poverty levels and stuff like that. Yeah, not that. Right. Yeah. If needed, as needed. Got it. Got it. Do you have weekend or evening appointments? You know, in the last year and a half during the pandemic, I've given up my office and doing all my work on Zoom. And I have found I have incredible flexibility. I can work all every day is like Sunday. Every day is the same (laughs) day for me. I can schedule clients morning, evenings. In midday, doesn't matter what day it is. I'm a, it's like I'm available 24-7 right now. So I am seeing clients and I, um, it's going to be a long time before I don't have any openings at all. I have gotcha, to be gotcha. really, really, really filled up. Okay. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? 
Well, as what I was saying before, um, it is my only career and it's my passion. And I'm very, very blessed and fortunate to have this career because I love it. And it's everything I wanted it to be. Uh, it's perfect. It's a perfect fit for my, my natural skills and abilities. And so I'm totally, totally into and grateful for the career that I have and the work that I'm doing. And if I was to do something else, if I, if, if there was another career that I would, would have preferred to do instead, it would have been screenwriting and film. And I didn't think I had as much talent for that as I do uh, to be a therapist and work on relationships. So I'm going where the action is. That's what, that's <laughs> I, what hear you, I hear you. So it sounds like, you know, this just passion for relationships and connection is what drew you to being a therapist. Was there, was that the main driver or were there other drivers as well? Or, or did it come as like a, a byproduct of beginning to recognize like your skill sets, for example? I think that after I graduated my, for my college with a BA, I, um, I realized that I need to figure out what I want to do with my career. This was after college, after four years mm -hmm a part of partying and having a great time and just enjoying the whole thing. I had to figure out what I'm going to do. What was my major and where was I going to go? And I, and I realized, so upon looking at that, making a decision about that, this was a no brainer. Wait, so what did I, did I answer your question? No. Yeah. I mean, I asked you what drew you to being a therapist and it sounds like relationships right. were right. really so, the big thing. Yeah. I'm, I, I just, love working on relationships. And I, since I've been so into it all of my life and all of my awareness of my experience has been kind of in relation to relationships. So it, I just realized that I'm going to do what I'm natural, what I'm naturally good at, what I'm most interested in and um, where I can make the biggest difference. It was a no brainer for me. Therapy. Got it. Got it. Got it. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like what are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music, pets, kids, etc. I love my dog. I wanted a dog <laughs> all my life. And um, my wife was not into dogs and didn't want a pet. And for many years, I didn't have a dog. But five years ago, I got my dog. It's Brown Lab. And um, it was more and it was everything that I always wanted to have the dog to be. And uh, I love her. And she's, uh, I live in Austin, Texas now with my wife and my dog in a, in a condo. It's away from people. And I'm so happy to have my dog with me and uh, my wife. It's the three of us. So um, I don't have, there are only a few things that I'm really, really into and and uh, and know a lot about and that is film mo movies theater sports relationships a lot of politics which we're probably going to get into a little bit later but um i have some very strong political uh views and positions that uh, i'm very passionate about and i'm very into those areas whether it's guns or whether it's Israel-Palestine, or whether it's Black Lives Matter. Um, there are other things that I'm very, very interested in and that my life purpose is overlaps with that. 
that just is, it's, it's in my guts to be mm -hmm. interested and care and move towards making a difference and making, seeing, making changes happen in those areas. So. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, when you're in therapy with clients, what modalities do you tend to draw upon? I'm very eclectic. I feel very, 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 I had great training and um, I'm, I know a lot about all the different schools of thinking and I just kind of um, integrated them into my own. I do my own thing. All of my work right now, I said, is about um, empowering the transformation of relationships by developing the relationship with yourself. So in that, I call upon systems therapy. I'm, I'm really doing, when I work with couples and families, I do a lot of systems th uh, therapy and theory and um, existential phenomenological. I'm, I'm, a lot of my work is I focus on being mindful and conscious and aware of what your experience is, because the more conscious and aware of what your experience is, the more you can be an anchor and a center point in your life and, and come from and be and live from that place of what your awareness of your experience is. So, so I use all, everything I've learned goes into whatever, whatever I come up. I'm very, I have a very creative approach. It's very customized to what the client's needs are. And uh, it's very customized. Okay. Well, changing gears a little bit to talk about the, uh, the topic, I read the paper you wrote. It was awesome. Um, so I think it would be good to start with like some terminology. So can you define the term stigma and social conditioning and the processes of these? Yes, I will. And you know what I want to do? I think the best thing that I, the best way I could answer that is I want to read from my book that I wrote because it's right there. I couldn't say it better than I wrote it. Right? <laughs> so let me read it. I want to read it. It's better. Do it. Okay. So what is a stigma? Okay. It's right here in this article that I wrote that you read. A stigma is a visible or known attribute that relegates a person to a substandard or less desirable category of people, a substandard status and category of desirability. So when a person is stigmatized, our perceptions and treatment towards that person are affected. The person gets labeled as defective and subsequently branded as an outcast, an example of what not to be. And that is undesir undesirable. The person's status, how she or they are seen in the eyes of others, and how they will ultimately feel about themselves, are all under arbitrary and brutal assault because they're all affected by the stigma. Whether aware or not, the tendency is to react with disdain, avoidance, or indifference. The kind of deep, silent pain that a stigmatized person suffers when one knows that what they are at their core is undesirable, unwanted, unworthy, and not belonging anywhere breaks a person. It's just that they build, they internalize shame and build up a shame-based identity, which is a deep, ingrained feeling of being defected, 
undesirable, unworthy, unlovable, dis un yeah, just feeling like really, really bad about yourself. Um, mm -hmm. Stigma causes shame and alienation to pervade one's sense of self and relationships. On a social conditioning level, stigmatization is a process of societal and familial conditioning. By the time we're adults, the negative reactions and judgments associated to any stigmatized condition are deeply ingrained in our unconscious. Those who carry a stigma know that they will be discredited the moment their stigma becomes known. So in the context of stigma and social conditioning, how do things like capitalism and other sociopolitical structures impact our socialization and the development of stigma? In so many ways, on so many levels, and in, 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 deep, in deep ways, uh, and in so many ways, you know, in terms of capitalism, capitalism is a system that desirability is based on how good a product is or how good it looks and the appearance and the effectiveness and the efficiency or how the performance aspect of what you have and what you are and what you're doing are reinforced and that that's celebrated that's that's what's deemed desirable or sellable or that you can make money on or and if you're not if you don't fit those criteria and those conditions are you going to not make money you're not going to be wanted you're not going to be worth anything so capitalism is a system that forces fosters appearance outside how you look and how you perform and not not what's on the inside so it actually encourages suppression and distortion of what's going on on the inside and with a total uh, emphasis on outside performance and appearance only so that is that has um you know when you're talking about a capitalist system how you know the the um the stigma the stigmatization process is deeply ingrained into that system and part of that system and is inherent in that system so that is very destructive in terms of celebrating people's expression and being intimate and being vulnerable being uh, real with what you sell being um open and comfortable enough to say what your real experience is because you know, there's, a, there's an atmosphere of unsafety and fear that if you don't fit those criteria, what's deemed desirable, what's wanted, appearance performed, you're going to pay a steep price. So this is, this system of capitalism is one of reward and punishment. Reward if you're good with the appearances and you're good with the performance and you can Appear, look the way you're supposed to look and what's deemed desirable, you're going to be okay and you're going to, be, you're going to have all the rewards that come with capitalism, whether it's status or money. But if you're not, then you're going to be punished. It's a, it's, a, it's a system of conformity that perpetuates the power and wields stigma as a weapon to maintain conformity and maintain the standards of de what's desirable 
and keep people living, reinforcing people's lives to, to live up to that and to suppress and deny and hide and push away um, what doesn't fit those criteria for desirability. Got it. Got it. Thank you for that explanation. That was a really thorough explanation. Um, and I totally agree with all that. So what sorts of things can one's own personal sense of stigma impact? Like, could you give us an example of maybe a particular stigma one may have um, that causes them to feel stigmatized and how that might impact something like, say, relationships, for example? That's a big question because there's a lot of answers. Right. Um, so in terms of relationships, one of the things I teach people in my relationship training when I'm working with relationships, whether it's couples and families, in order to be intimate, in order to connect deeply, there needs to be a safe space for what is coming up. And most of us enter into relationships and develop relationships um, with people who fit their desire, fit their, what they're looking for, fit the pictures of what they want. So they see people as what they, how, what they want to see or um, what they like and what they're drawn to. And they forget that everyone's a mixed bag. So, this is where it really comes up and where stigma shows up in relationships is that it's really hard to embrace the reality that everyone's a mixed bag because the things that are not, so mixed bag means you're warts and all, you got warts and you got beautiful skin. So, but you only want to show the beautiful skin. So if you're able to really celebrate, uh, embrace, the everybody is a mixed bag reality and truth, then there would be more safety and comfort in having a safe space for people to be mixed bag, to not to show their warts, not just their skin. And, and the intimacy in relationships, the, the depth of connection and the depth of intimacy is based on the whole on the ability for someone to be fully themselves, respond freely and spontaneously without having to worry about whether it's desirable or undesirable or how it's gonna land, that still be, they will still be unconditionally accepted. Where it gets in the way in relationships is because people wanna be nice, they wanna show their good sides and they get very, very queasy and uh, it's very dicey and scary to risk showing what might be undesirable. So they, and then when they they can no longer hide it and it comes out in a relationship, a lot of times if you don't, if your relationship is based on your distorted view or your idealized picture of how you want that, per, who that person is, or you want that person to be, you're going to get overwhelmed and uh, probably not, the relationship will not have the, um, the foundation to withstand the reality of the mixed bags. It will be disillusioning, it will cause a crash, There'll be, it will be overwhelming. Um, so this is where it comes in a lot, it's a, a, around intimacy and hiding what is stigmatized, hiding what you think 
if if it's exposed, you'll be rejected, you'll be disrespected. And so there's a lot of that that gets in the way of relationships. But there are so many other conditions that therapists deal with where it becomes a very, stigma becomes a very big issue. Now, and I wrote, I, I addressed some of these areas in, the, in that article that I wrote. Well, let, let's say for this one, let's, let's talk about the stigma that is attached to these conditions that you will see as a therapist come into your office. You're talking about things, um, conditions like epilepsy, uh, bipolar conditions, schizophrenia. This becomes a very big issue in treatment because when you're treating these people who have these conditions, medication is required in, in, with, with epilepsy, with bipolar, with schizophrenia, all of these conditions, there's really no cure, but the treatment is medication to stabilize the person, to relieve the symptoms or reduce the incidence of the, um, the symptoms that could be life-threatening and often are. And uh, because these conditions have a stigma attached to it, the people who you're treating, medication is always an issue. And the way medication is always an issue is that when you're not symptomatic in these conditions, you don't want the medication because you want to be normal. You don't want, if you need the medication, because that means that there's something wrong with you. When you're not taking the medication and you're not symptomatic, you want to be normal and you want to stop taking the medication just because of the stigma. So they take, they go off the medication and then they're at risk of decompensating or having very severe symptoms again. And, you know, I will say also, you know, schizophrenia, I have learned recently, I've known about the stigma that's attached to schizophrenia, but I learned about it recently firsthand because I have a nephew that killed himself only six weeks ago, and he was schizophrenic. And he was off his medication at the time that he killed himself. And I know from, because I was very close to him and I was close with his father, my brother-in-law, that the medication was always an issue. He never wanted to be, it was always a fight. And um, my brother-in-law and other people couldn't really deal with Ben, who's my nephew, because he had these symptoms, he was schizophrenic. There's this huge stigma that's attached to schizophrenia. And when you act, when you're schizophrenic and you're not on medication and you're psychotic and you're delusional and you're having hallucinations, that is very stigmatizing. And for someone who's a loved one and a parent and even a therapist, the, 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 um, the effect of the stigma brings up so much shame that it's really hard. My brother, my brother-in-law, was never really able to understand and be effective in dealing with his son because he couldn't deal with the, with the behavior of the schizophrenic behavior and what goes on in him. He couldn't, it was hard for him to deal with. And he, and also the medication, he didn't want to be, he couldn't really understand the, his son's condition and learn how to be more effective when dealing with him because of the stigma, because he could not accept and see his son as schizophrenic. 
you know, I talk about it with, you know, gays and lesbians, you know, the gay population, LG, LBGB, LG, what is it? Help me here. LGBTQIA+. Thank you. Now, I know the, the population of people are, have a huge struggle and pain lifelong around dealing with the stigma that's attached to being in one of those conditions. For instance, I know that working with that population, the experience I have, I have some experience, I'm not working that much right now with them, but I've worked a lot in the past. And what I have found is that with these populations, the clinical issues, the work that they have to do in therapy, in addition to everything that they're dealing with in their life and that brings them into therapy, all of these people in this population have to deal with the effects of the stigma. They all, their primary, all, they have, there's three primary issues that have to be dealt with in, with this LGBTQ uh, population. And that is coming out. Coming out is a deal because you're, you're risking, you're stepping into the fire of the effects of the stigma. So you, it's really a difficult situation to navigate because if you don't come out and you're hiding, you're going to be in shame and outside, not living the life you want to live. But then if you do expose it, you're going to be having the consequences of all the, all the effects of the stigma. So coming out, internalized homophobia is something that every person, everyone, everyone in that population has to deal with that because the stigma is so strong around that, that sexual alteration or difference that, and there's so much shame about it that it's become internalized. And so a lot of the work that they have to do is to undo the conditioning and the internalization of shame from the stigma of that condition of being gay or lesbian or whatever they are. And then the third thing aspect that they, the third clinical issue that they have to deal with is just living in the world where their sexual orientation and who they are is stigmatized. So they, they're living in a society where everyone is conditioned at, in the same way, you know, the what's desirable according to being drawn to what's desirable and rejecting what's undesirable. That, and the internalization that occurs in that, they all have to do, deal with that and undo that because they they hate themselves or uh, feel ashamed at the core of who they are because of the conditioning that was internalized, not because of them. So they have to work on that and become mindful and learn to see how that caused and contributed to how they really feel inside of themselves, about themselves, at their core. So when you're working with that population, the effects of stigma are going to be par, part of the therapy, no matter whether they, that be, that's a presenting issue or not, that's going to be part of the process of healing and transformation for them and, and, and turning their lives around and making it them happier, more fulfilled in their lives and relationships. They have to deal with that. And so what I'm hearing from just kind of condensing a, a lot of what I've heard from you so far is essentially if we carry a stigma and we're confronted with this, then we have a tendency to more so like, quote, perform our relationships 
rather than like actually connect, it sounds like. And it sounds like in a individual basis, the barrier to connection when we have a stigma is shame. And that shame is what prevents us from being able to be vulnerable and, you know, wholeheartedly connect with somebody. Very nice. Exactly. So the way it affects relationships and intimacy is that you do not, no one usually feels comfortable enough to be vulnerable and no one one is going to want to expose in their relationship what they themselves feel is shameful and undesirable and risk that. So when you, so you're entering into the relationship based on covering up what you don't want to be seen. And that's going to create a wedge in the relationship and a barrier. And you're living a secret life. You're, you're with someone who you're developing a relationship with and becoming closer and more intimate with. But the whole name of the game for you is to show this part and never under any circumstances, let the other undesirable shame um, based things that you have about yourself be exposed or come out. What's your approach to like working with stigma and shame uh, with your clients? Education. Mm-hmm. Education is very important. This is what like the conversation we're having right now is very similar to the conversation that um, I would have with clients that they need to be educated about stigma, what it is that there is something, there's something to be said. Stigma is a force. It's powerful. It's like racism. It's like capitalism. Stigma is a huge monolithic force that affects our culture and how we feel about ourselves and how we relate to each other. It affects everything. Stigma is going to come up for all of us, no matter what, whether we, whether we have a, um, a condition that carries a stigma, whether it's visible or invisible, or whether it's neither, it's still, the stigma comes down to what is undesirable, what is desirable. So there's, it's a very, very big area, and it can be very general and globalized in, and to all relationships and all people all the time, but it also can be broken down to more specific situations and conditions that have a stigma attached to them and some will have a greater stigma and some have less of a stigma and some are more visible and some are less visible and how they hide it. So most of the people that I work with, not only is the generalized globalized effects of stigma relevant in a conversation, but if they have any of the conditions and many do, like if you're gay or if you have a seizure seizure disorder or schizophrenia, those people need to be taught, we need to talk about that. We, so if I'm working with a gay client, I'm going to be talking about like the areas that I'm talking about, the way stigma has affected them. And I'd be talking about the internalized homophobia. I'd be talking about the way stigma impairs or impedes the coming out process. And also talking about what they have to live in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that the education that I do with clients around stigma reinforces the reality that something like stigma exists and it's okay to bring it out, put it on the table, talk about it, expose it, see it for what it is, and then work with it in a way to mitigate the shame 
internalization process that occurs and to kind of separate yourself from it and be able to see that that was internalized, not who you are, and be able to begin embracing the other aspects of yourself that were left in the dark and never realized because you felt you felt all, all your energy was uh, expended uh, keeping up the appearances and not letting that out. Gotcha. Okay. So everybody is socially conditioned in varying ways to varying degrees, whether we like it or not even therapists, and what ways have you fought back against your own social conditioning? And what advice do you have for, for others who wish to seek out how stigma has impacted their perceptions of others and themselves and wish to change that? Yeah, and I wrote in this article that um, I learned about my homophobia, for instance, when I was working with gay clients. And uh, it was unconscious. I wasn't aware of it at the time. And my clients, my, the clients I was working with actually pointed it out to me. And it was coming out in a way that I wasn't, I never really found out as I should have. And I was responsible to find out more about the specific, specifics of AIDS and HIV. And because I never let myself reckon with the reality of AIDS because I had uh, difficulties with homophobia and I was, it just made me uncomfortable, but I became conscious of it in this process. And I had the humility to appreciate my clients who were pointing it out rather than, you know, lambasting me and pointing out my ignorance. They were very compassionate and supportive and allowed a safe space for me to recognize where how that stigma was affecting me and how I was internalizing it. And, um, and I came to, and it came out. And I, so it came into light and, uh, and I appreciated that. So, you know, what's, what I really recommend um, to therapists to do, to get more of a handle on stigma and how they're affected by it. There's this great book, that just came out and it's not about stigma. It's about racism. It's called white fragility. You probably heard of it. You know of it by Robin D'Angelo. Anyway, she makes this great point about why it's so difficult for white people in particular to, to talk openly and honestly about racism is because there's a binary. There's a binary that racism is bad. Uh, if you're racist and you don't want to be racist. So if you have, so because we don't want to be racist, we can't own up or look at uh, with any objectivity at all, any how we can be racist without intending it, without being bad about it, just because of the influence, like of stigma. Racism was, um, Racism is a factor like stigma, the way, the, the way um, it influences all white people in particular. So the binary aspect of it is like learning, learning to look at your own homophobia or whatever your, whether it's racism, whether it's homophobia or whatever it is as a phenomena that affects your behavior that doesn't make you good or bad. Like if you're homophobic, you're not a bad person. You're just like everybody else who's been in this society brought up under these conditions that have internalized 
the system of the system of desire, reward, and punishment, and what's desirable and what's not desirable. So it's really encouraging people to bring it up and look at themselves in a non-judgmental way, but to look at how they their beliefs and their behaviors are preferential or um, have beliefs and negative negative associations about certain conditions. So yeah, I don't know if I answered you. You were talking about being tongue twisted earlier. I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm smooth here and I'm answering these questions as well as they are in my head. So um, no, you're doing a great job. Um, so the other thing I want to point out, you know, I think is if we have an awareness of our own stigmas, we have a responsibility to do what we need to do to resolve them, especially as therapists. Um, and especially as people in humanity, just even regarding racism. Um, you know, if we are able to recognize it, we have a responsibility to do something about it, is how I feel. Right, but you have to recognize it. So it's really about recognizing it and not right. making yourself wrong or having any negative or positive, uh, moralistic or preferential interpretation of it. It just is a phenomena that we all are affected by. It's social conditioning. It's cultural. So white people, all white people, by virtue of their whiteness, have behaved and have beliefs that are racist, that, that are racist, which doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them regular, normal white people who've been in, internalized and inculcated all of generations, hundreds of years of indoctrination and internalization of these beliefs about them, whether it's black or white, whether it's gay or straight, whatever it is. I know that for myself, I've had many conversations in the past with different people when they were beginning, when I started talking about privilege, white privilege, and how I, I couldn't have it because I didn't want to be, I don't, I, don't, I don't treat other people that way, like I'm privileged, like I'm better than them, or I'm superior, or they're inferior. And I couldn't, I couldn't get it. Like how, I'm not racist, I'm not that way. I'm not, I'm not racist. But then over time, and especially after reading this book, I was able to see by virtue of my whiteness, that I do have beliefs that are almost unconscious, maybe subconscious, and I do have behaviors that are preferential, that are based on my privilege and my superiority or and their inferiority. And I could see that now and I understand it. And I have compassion for myself and more understanding and compassion for those people who are at the effect of it. So it's only been good for me. Yeah, now, now I see just by being white, by, by being in that preferential, I'm in a desirable race and color of skin, and I have to live with that, that awareness. And I, I'm almost racist by default, and we're all homophobic almost by default because that's how we've all been conditioned. So we have to shed light on, and it all goes into our, our unconscious. So the more light that shed on it, the more we're able to bring it out on the table and talk about it and see it and explore it and share other people's experiences, the more we can come to terms with the full magnitude and the reality of that. Got it. Well, thank you, Daniel, for explaining that. And, you know, you're quite vulnerable, vulnerable there as well, and I appreciate that. Um, so let's switch gears again back to you as a therapist. 
What kinds of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? I am very, very aware now when I am with any people that in those categories that um, they are stigmatized people. They are the less desirable people. They have to live with the effects of stigma and this internalization of shame. And um, so I would, I would try to lead the, con- lead the conversations and have conversations with them about their experience of that, what, what the experiences that they've had that were abusive and life-threatening and harmful because of their innate, inherent, stigmatized condition. So all people of color, everyone who's non-white right now, I am, I am super sensitive and aware right there immediately that any person of color, any person that has any stigmatized condition, whether it's visible or invisible, um, have been hurt and have been hurt by this social conditioning, have internalized shame about it, have distorted perceptions about people and the world about it. It gets in the way of their relationships. It gets in the way of how they live and how they relate. And so um, it's a theme. I work with it as a theme. It's very up in the, it's very in my face right now. It's very at the surface, this business about stigma and um, the effects of it and how it affects the quality of our lives and relationships. So there's a lot of process of education that we explore and then it becomes very personalized around what their specific personal experiences have been and what they've been through and how they deal with it and how they want to deal with it and what they could do to deal with it better, to take better care of themselves, to be more fulfilled, um, just to feel more fulfilled in their lives. So it's, mm-hmm. yeah, this is, a very, this, is a, this is often, I don't think that you can go to have therapy with me for any period of time without this coming up, this, these conversations that we're having right now. Because mm-hmm. when okay. you talk about your own identity and how you feel, self-feelings and identity and how you relate and intimacy and mixed bags, everyone's a mixed bag, a basic principle that you may, you may, most people may say, oh yeah, of course, we're all mixed bags, but that's not how we live. That's not how we behave. That's not how we relate. We're still robots and dictated by what's been internalized according to those standards of what's desirable and what's undesirable. Everything, Mm -hmm. everything, it's like dominoes. Everything follows from that. So we have to go back to where the first domino, where that was and see if we can keep that by going back to it and starting from where the first one, maybe we can keep it from falling and knocking down all the other ones. Okay. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? You know, I have a couple of clients recently, new clients recently that I asked them, you know, have they heard about me or, you know, have they got, got to me? These two last, the last two clients I asked about this, they said they went to my website and they saw what I wrote and they saw videos of me introducing myself and my work and they liked my direct style, my New York down here, down home style right here being direct, right in your face. 
um, the way I am. So some people, that's, so the people, it's great when the people go to my website and they get a taste or a sample of me. And if they could see my style that I'm kind of direct and out there and maybe confrontative or just say what I have to say, that could engender fear and they don't want to work with me because it would get them too uncomfortable dealing with someone that's so uh, out there like I am. Or it may be something that it builds trust and credibility that they want that. And so they're coming to me wanting that and expecting to get it. And then it's good. Then I can deliver it because it's so natural. I'm not trying to be the way I am. It just is the way I am. So I, there is a lot of Daniel that, um, that comes with the territory. And it's not always, it doesn't fit every person. You know, some people don't want to work with me. A lot of people don't. And you know what? I'm glad if they don't want to work with me, I don't want to work. It's, it's not going to be a good fit. So, um, so you could expect me to be asking you directly all the time, what's going on with you? What are you feeling? Demanding, looking to, for you to look, go deeper into yourself, into the more vulnerable, delicate, sensitive, tender areas, and to create a safe space to come out. It's all about creating a safe space. And, the other thing that is a theme in my work with every client, no matter what's couples, family, or, or whatever, this thing about the relationship with yourself. So when you're coming into work with me, you can count on that what we're going to be doing is working on your relationship with yourself, whatever that means is part of the therapy process, but that is going to be the goal. So you know what I say? One of the things that I'm famous for and that I write you know, that I write a lot and I say a lot about is the quality of your relationships is the quality of your life. And the quality of your relationships is the quality of your relationship with yourself. Okay. You used a, a few words a couple of minutes ago when you started talking um, that may apply to this, but how would you say your clients would describe you or experience you? My New York style, say what I have to say, my directness, um, my ability to connect and go down deep and hit the spots um, that need to come out, that need to be addressed. And, um, you know, they can count on me for that. And uh, they rely on that, mm -hmm. from getting that from me. And I'm developing a relationship with them in the process that, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the whole thing about relationship with yourself, we do that work in the context of our therapeutic alliance, our relationship. So um, it's in their developing relationship with me that they go deeper into themselves and learn how to take better care of themselves with their symptoms, with their struggles, and in their relationships. And they appreciate that. And it's new. It's, I, I, I don't know. This may, I don't know if this sounds, you know, typical for you, what this is what therapists do. But I think that this is a very unique, it's unique to me and my style and my orientation. And um, I always say also, whether it's personal relationships or professional relationships, what happens in your therapy to me is not because of me, that me being a great therapist or you 
hearing something I say and liking it, but it's more grows out of the relate, what we're able to create together. We're creating it. So you're part of our relationship and working together is that you are gaining and developing a relationship with yourself. And right. um, that is new. A lot of, most of the, the overwhelming majority of the people that I work with um, may know this, may have heard this, but don't bring it into their lives and practice it. And it's not real. They may say that they know about how important having a relationship is with yourself. And it's always the relationship with yourself, but they don't really have one and they don't really live it. And there's a big difference between that. So a lot of the therapy is making this real. What does this really feel like to have a relationship with yourself? How does it empower you? How does it heal you? How, what does it do for you in terms of the direction you want to go in your life, who you want to be and how you want your relationships to be. So it's very unique. And I, um, and I'm unique in the, in this orientation and these perspectives and, um, that uniqueness and that creativity is, um, much appreciated and is what people are feedback about. Yeah. yeah. They're getting the most and they appreciate the most about the process and working with me. Got it. Got it. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? The answer is yes, easily. And it's not like I do it. I cry with my clients. It's not like I cry with my clients, but I am open enough and present enough in the moment. Like when I'm talking to you right now and you say something, you share something to me or you say something that, affects me emotionally, that moves me, that touches me, that can make, bring tears to my eyes, or I'm out there. I'm out there. I'm sharing that moment with them, and I'm totally mm -hmm. comfortable with that, and it deepens our connection, and there's nothing. I'm not like dumping my stuff on them, or it's making it about me. It's just deepens being able to be emotionally present and vulnerable, potentiates and encourages my client to be more comfortable with their emotions and their feelings and be with them and express them with another person. Makes sense to me. How do yeah, you define it? So, so it's like, I, um, I'm practicing what I preach that, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Emotional access, being in touch with your emotions, expressing your emotions is a key part of your well being, your health and well being. And so I do that. This is, I say that, but I'm actually very strong in that area because I'm, I have You're modeling it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. How do you define holding space for someone? I'm holding space right now. I'm taking a breath and I listen and I know, um, this is what listening is. Listening is creating it. It's not just this, but it's, it's this and more, but it is always creating a safe space of openness and receptivity for the person who is across from me, who I am with, whether it's personal or professional, to be mm -hmm. who they are, to, to let what their true experience is in that moment, in any given moment, to be fully out there. And I will meet them there. I will do the same with them. And um, that's, that's really how to be, to, to have mm -hmm. emotion, to to have access to your feelings, to express them, and to be able to build relationships in which 
you feel safe enough, both of you feel safe enough with each other to be fully yourselves at any given moment about any whatever's going on to be able to come out and have a safe space. So listening, I always also say that listening is very active engagement. People think, oh, listening, people kind of fade out or are not as engaged when they're not talking or they feel more engaged when they're talking. For me, I'm more engaged when I'm listening. Listening is powerful engagement, creating a safe space and letting, being receptive and being conscious and sharing an experience with someone in the moment only makes them more safe and comfortable to do the same. So all that listening is, it's an art. It's an art of listening. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I feel very, very powerful when I'm listening, just to be able to be with whatever the person, look at them and be with them and share them. Listening has a very powerful effect. It's very underestimated and it's very subtle. But when you're listening attentively and you're present emotionally and feeling what the other person is expressing, that is enlivening and validating and intimate and connecting with the other person and it's nourishing. It's inherently nourishing, listening. And it's just, again, it's more active engagement than actually talking. So nothing to be underestimated and to always be appreciated as an art that you could always get better at. And the better you are at it, the better, the more intimacy you're going to have and the deeper connections you're going to have. It's all about how well you're able to listen, how much space you have. Okay. person to be yeah what's the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor oh the best advice that i've seen from a supervisor is to trust myself what to go with what i'm go what go with what's going on with me in the moment rather than to bring what i learned from textbooks in beyond road from textbooks but the, the greatest thing I learned from supervisors in my career was that therapy is an art form and it's a creative process and it requires you to be present in the moment with your client and not try and be busy saying the right thing or doing a certain technique or following some kind of agenda or protocol or structure or technique. It's about being present in the moment and responding to what's going on in the moment and taking that, going, taking that to a direction that you feel you want to go in the name of greater wholeness, health, fulfillment, intimacy, or whatever. Okay. What would you say you've personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? I am blessed and I am want to acknowledge myself for choosing this work that I'm so passionate about, but it is so fulfilling. It's so creative for me. The magical moments of connection, insight, transformation are the highlights of my day. It's what I live for. It's where I can make a difference. It's those are the most powerful moments for me. And, um, and I've had many. The last 
I don't know what's going on with me, but in the last couple of months, I feel like I've been in a zone and I've been uh, really on and I've had a lot of like blockbuster, one in a million moments, like magical, powerful, transformative moments that was so great that so I, it really can make a difference in terms of how people feel about themselves and how they live their lives and the quality of their relationships. That's my purpose in life. That's what I want to do. That's my calling. That's what I want. That's the difference I want to make. That's the contribution I want to make. And it happens. It's real. And it happens in small moments in my office. Whatever happens at that particular moment is what inspires me mm -hmm. and makes me feel good. It's, those are highlights. Those become the highlights. Those moments, those things become, that's why I'm doing this work. Yeah. What do you do to take care of yourself? You know, I've been practicing mindfulness. I think that the year 2020 and the 2021, the last two or three years have been most memorable to me because I feel that I've been most mindful. I've been more mindful. I'm not meditating more but I have a more mindful approach and awareness in everything I do and whatever, what, whatever, whatever it is I do. So this being mindful is a way of taking care of myself and keeping my level of reactivity and emotional intensity closer to neutral, staying more balanced and um, listening more being more observant as opposed to having to respond. The way I take care of myself right now what is when I'm being mindful and I'm, in, I'm aware of engaging like I am with you and you're talking or there's something I want to say and I want to kind of blurt it into the conversation because it's so important and I want to say it. But you know what I found out about taking care of myself is that, you know what? I don't have to say it. What if, uh, how I take care of myself is these days, oftentimes realizing that not everything I want to be, that I want to say has to be said. Not everything that I have to say and that I do say is better because I said it. And it could be better for me to actually not say it. So um, I'm playing around with that. I'm less, um, I'm more receptive and less invested in having to say something or control something or influence something or I'm much more comfortable going with the process right now. That's how I take care of myself. Let the process be, not get bogged down or locked in to uh, any one thought or any one situation. It just, it's okay. It's okay. I'm much lighter. I'm much lighter now. How would you define happiness? One of the things I say about myself is that I'm not a joyful person. Joy is not an easy emotion for me. I rarely have joy. I don't relate to joy. I don't care about happiness. I'm not happy. I don't need to be happy. It's not, I don't care about happiness. But um, the truth is I'm happiest when I'm creative, when I'm creatively engaged, when I'm like, whether I, like I'm having a conversation with you, a really great conversation, or I'm writing, or um, I'm working with a client or doing therapy, it's a creative outlet, or when I'm watching a great movie, 
or um, there's really great entertainment, whether it's sports. You asked me what I'm into before I'm into sports, movies, and theater. So I am, I couldn't be happier than I am seeing a great movie, great concert, great sports event, a great uh, play. That's when I'm happy is when I'm engaged in something. Uh, so you would describe then happiness perhaps as fleeting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, I think I was happy. I felt happy. I wouldn't say, I don't know if happiness is the right word, but I felt a deep sense of joy because two days ago, right now I'm in Denver visiting with my family. So my, my two, my wife, my two kids and their spouses. And, um, we celebrated my birthday on Tuesday night. Happy belated uh, birthday. Thank you. And I did feel joy. I did feel a deep sense of joy and happiness and love. Love. Love is happiness. When I'm, when I'm able to feel my feelings of my, my love for someone and my closeness and that warmth, I'm always happy. That always makes me happy. But it's fleeting, mm -hmm. like you said. I don't, it was just, I don't, I don't feel that all the time, but when on, on Tuesday night, you know, they went around, well, we were at, my son took me out to a great restaurant and part of the dinner, during the dinner, everyone there, five people were sharing with me how, what it meant to them that I was their father and their spouses, that their father-in-law and, um, and my wife was acknowledging me and it just, the love and closeness is what makes me happy. So whenever mm -hmm. I am engaged in, whether I'm creatively engaged in, a, I'm engaged in a creative process or I feel very connected, I'm very happy. I'm very happy, feel a lot of joy <laughs> and gratitude. It's where I wanna be, but those moments, like you said, moments, or few and far between. These aren't lasting states or conditions. They are situational and temporary. They're momentary. So what I want to do in life is to build up as many of these moments as I can, because these are the moments that become memorable. Um, nothing, I don't remember anything else really. So, mm -hmm. it's, and it's nothing else is really that meaningful other than when I can actually experience the love and closeness that are in my relationships or when I'm in really in a creative, engaged in a creative process with someone. Got it. Okay. Okay. So uh, we have a few, few questions left. The next couple are a little vulnerable. Um, the first one is what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? Oh, there's, a, there's several, there, there are several. Well, one, one was, um, what I was talking about around stigma when I, you know, 30 years ago when I was doing these groups with the gay and lesbian population and um, my um, seeing that I was, has seen how my homophobia was playing out, coming out despite of, oh, me, I'm not homophobic. I'm good. I'm good with everyone. So I, I felt like I had egg on my face and um, embarrassed because I had to swallow the bitter pill and say, oh yeah, I guess I am. I, I'm pretty homophobic, I guess, despite my own ways I want to think, see myself. So that was embarrassing, but it was a good embarrassment and it was appreciated and celebrated and embraced by the client 
that I felt embarrassed with. I, I may say things that I regret or things that didn't land or things that were misunderstood and caused the session or the conversation to go into a different direction or where I had to be defensive or I had to be responsible and own something that I mm -hmm. said or did. Um, you know, I'm having difficulty coming up with the specific examples, but what I strive to be in my mindfulness is okay to make mistakes and to be embarrassed and to have egg on my face. Yes, I've done that. I will continue to make those mistakes. I will have egg on my face at times and I'll be okay. And I'll turn all of those into learning experiences. So the embarrassment, yeah, the embarrassment's not going to last or become internalized or I'm not going to go too far with it. I'm just going to, if I get constructive feedback and learn something about myself, I feel nothing but appreciation. If it doesn't fit and I feel it's, critical or judgmental or destructive and not really supportive to me. Um, I, I don't take it on. I don't have, I don't, I'm, I'm able to screen it out and use what works and leave the rest and not get into a whole hurt or defeat um, defeated or defensive reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next vulnerable question is, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? I have been in lots of therapy uh, through, you know, my, I guess the first 10 years of my career, there was intensive therapy that I did, individual therapy with three different therapists, maybe from anywhere from a year to three years or four years with each one of those over a period of 10 years. Um, and most recently, three years ago, we had a big upset in my family, my family, um, my wife, my wife and my two kids, we had a very, very big upset. And we went into family therapy. The four of us went into family therapy. And we had three sessions of family therapy together. And I did, they were not productive. And I had a, I had a hesitant reservation from the beginning about it because I'm a therapist right now that at this point in my career, I can't handle being in therapy right now because I naturally, instead of being a client and seeking therapy from the therapist, I could start with the problem that I'm having, something I want to do therapy on. And then all of a sudden the therapist is responding and I'm like looking at them doing therapy on me and I'm <laughs> in therapist mode. I'm in a therapist mode and I'm not in a client mode. I am not anymore at this stage of my life. <laughs> I, can't, I have to be honest and tell you that I'm not comfortable right now in therapy, but I've been in a lot of therapy, even family therapy and the therapy that I did have what, you know, early in my career was great. I had a great, it was very deep. It was great therapy and a great relationships with all three therapists. So I'm into therapy, my own therapy. But at this point right now, I'm too much of a therapist right now in a therapist mindset and too little in a client mindset. I just can't, I'm not comfortable with that. I, I, it's not going to work for me. It's kind of like how doctors are the worst patients, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true for me. Yeah, I can't <laughs> 
Well, Daniel, is there anything else you think would be good for a potential client or other therapist to know about you and or stigma and social conditioning? No, you know, I think I touched upon, you asked me questions and I was able to touch upon a lot of the uh, important, most salient points or features of this, this talk about stigma. I think we did cover a lot of ground. Um, I don't think I was as clear and as concise and to the point as I would have liked to have felt, but. Um, I think you gave a lot of great information. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay, good. And thanks so, so much for being on the show. Okay, is there anything else you want to ask me or that you haven't asked me or anything else you want to? Um, no, I mean, I think you, you gave us a really good rundown of stigma and social conditioning and your own experiences. And I think it was fantastic. So thank you so much. Thank you, Noah. For listening to Next Quest podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring Michael Romero, licensed clinical social worker supervisor, who will be discussing his practice in an area of specialty, creative therapeutic interventions, and working with children, teens, and families. Next Quest podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmit Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmit Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.